Good morning. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. I uh, was looking around and back for a moment. I couldn't find a seat. Then I realized I didn't need a seat. So, problem solved. But welcome to the National Capital Bible Church today. On Resurrection Day, we are certainly welcome to have you. And we must remember that on Resurrection Day, the operative phrase, of course, is that he is risen. And there are many religions in the world who have uh, supposed deities or gods, but the uniqueness of our God is that he not only came as a man and as a God in the hypostatic union, but he has provided for our sins. We need do nothing regarding our sins except acknowledge that we have them. And he died for those sins, paid for the guilt, and has risen and lives. He has conquered death. We have a risen Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he shall meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf never withers, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up as a ransom for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. This morning as we prepare to study the word of God, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation is simply you having a conversation with God the Father. It's an opportunity for you to confess the sins that you know you've committed. And this isn't a long, uh, lengthy period. It takes a few seconds to simply identify uh, the most recent sins that you, have, that you have committed in the past few minutes, maybe the last few hours, last days. And we use 1 John 1, 9 as the grace per, per, uh, provision to make that confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we do this privately uh, in, the, uh, in our own souls. And the way we achieve privacy is by closing our eyes and bowing our heads. And you have these few seconds for confession of sins, as we call it, spiritual preparation, as we approach the Word of God. Because we cannot study the Word of God and have it be of any value to us if we have sins in our lives. We are walking in darkness, and we need to walk in the light, even as He is in the light. So you have a few seconds right now to close your eyes, bow your heads, confession of sins, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful on Resurrection Day that we have the opportunity to study about the Word of God about your Son, about our Savior, about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Father, that we 
recognize these days, these special days that bring certain doctrines to our minds, doctrines that we can pound away into our souls so we will develop muscle in our souls for living our daily lives. We're thankful, Father, that we have a risen Savior, a Savior who has fulfilled your plan for his life, a plan that called for him to go to the cross, the cross before the crown. And because of the cross, we have a relationship not only with our Savior, Father, but with you. And now we can look forward to the crown, the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the second advent. Because the fact that he has risen is not simply wonderful hope for us that we also will rise, but that we will see him again someday. And we look forward to his return. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the word of God. Help us to focus on the events of the days, whether it be Palm Sunday that brings us forward as we approach the tomb or on Resurrection Day as we depart the tomb. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we begin, I would like to just momentarily observe a historical event. And that historical event was the Battle of Okinawa. This is a battle that occurred in World War II. And some might say it's rather uh, strange on Resurrection Day, as I like to call it. I think I've said before, uh, using the term Easter is not a problem. But it causes me to stop to explain what Easter means, and we're going to do that. But when I say Resurrection Day, I think we all know precisely to what we refer. But I'm going to pause just momentarily as we get into our service to remember the Battle of Okinawa. And the reason I do is because as the Lord Jesus Christ has given his life, to pay for the guilt of our sins, we also have had many in our past who have given their lives for our freedom so that we have the right, the opportunity to be here this morning to study the Word of God. And it's apropos that we study the Battle of Okinawa, or at least reflect on it for just a few seconds, because the actual ground campaign started on 1 April 1945. It lasted for approximately 82 days, well into June of that year. It was called by many who were there the Typhoon of Steel. That was in the English. The Japanese that were there called it the Rain of Steel. And so for them, uh, it was truly raining down upon them. Okinawa was the largest amphibious invasion of the Pacific campaign and the last major campaign of the Pacific War. Thank goodness it was the last major campaign because of Okinawa, the the devastation of that campaign, the size of it, the devastation of it. It was one of the factors that played heavily on our president's mind at the time, President Truman, in his decisions to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because it was an extraordinarily difficult campaign. More ships were used, more troops were put ashore, more supplies transported, more bombs dropped, more more naval gunfire against shore targets than any other operation in the Pacific. We actually started the the campaign for Okinawa 
in September of 1944. That was the preparation. The preparation began. And as it got closer, we had many days of aerial raids from carrier-based uh, carrier based aircraft and then also uh, land-based aircraft as we flew them in from distances like Guam and Saipan. More people died during the Battle of Okinawa than all those killed during the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Casualties totaled more than 38,000 American wounded, 12,000 killed or missing, more than 107 Japanese and Okinawan conscripts killed, and perhaps 100,000 Okinawan civilians perished in the battle. The Battle of Okinawa proved to be the bloodiest battle of the Pacific War, and it was particularly bloody simply because as we approached the Japanese islands, we were now really fighting for their home turf. They were defending their home turf. It began in Iwo Jima and now Okinawa. And so this was now very personal to them. The Battle of Okinawa proved to be the bloodiest battle of the Pacific War. 34 Allied ships and craft of all types had been sunk mostly by kamikazes, and 368 ships and, and craft damaged. The fleet lost 763 aircraft, and that sounds like a lot until we get down to the losses of the other side, but it was, again, 82 days of struggle. The fleet had lost 763 aircraft. Total American casualties in the, operations, in the operation numbered over 12,000 killed, including nearly... 5,000 Navy dead and almost 8,000 Marine and Army dead. So this was one of those battles in which the Navy really uh, was up against it very hard. Navy casualties were tremendous with a ratio of one killed for one wounded as compared to one to five for those who were ashore, meaning the Marines and the soldiers. Japanese losses were enormous. 107,539 soldiers killed and somewhere, this is an estimate, somewhere in the vicinity of 23,700 sealed in caves or or buried by the Japanese themselves. Only 10,755 were captured or surrendered. So you can see this was a tremendous battle. The invasion began on 1 April 1945 when 60,000 troops, uh, two Marine and two Army divisions, landed with little opposition. The day began and ended with the heaviest concentration of naval gunfire ever expended to support an amphibious landing. And gathered off the beaches were, as we said, a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of ships, sailors, and in reality, also, many army vessels were offshore as well. And so that's how we started the battle for Okinawa. And I don't want to go any, any further. We can take up a little bit more of this later on. But the fact remains is that this was a battle, an epic battle for freedom. And we pause to remember those who fought there because we must not forget. And I believe that John 15:13 says it uh, very well when it says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And those who gave their lives, gave their lives for us. And that continues. And we, in this church, 
try to remember and honor our military, those who are who have served and those who are serving. And we have members of this church who are now fighting overseas. We have one in Africa. We have in the Horn of Africa, another one for sure in uh, Iraq, uh, another very good friend in Afghanistan, and then other friends who we pray for on a daily basis who are serving to protect our freedom. And so we pause just momentarily to view that. This morning, we're moving on to, or moving rather back, I should say, to our study of uh, finishing up a study that we started, and that was Palm Sunday. But before we do, let me talk just a little bit about our Easter and Resurrection Day. Historically, commemoration of Christ's resurrection, as with his birth, has echoed various pagan rites or traditions. And so we, we don't shun these words, but we often have to understand where the words uh, originated. And so this morning, we're going to take just a few seconds to look at the word Easter. And scholars variously, and there is again some dispute, as almost with everything, scholars variously attribute the name Easter to a derivation of Ostra. And it's spelled E-O-S-T-R-A. And depending upon uh, your origin, as you pronounce the two letters, E-O-S-T-R-A, you might pronounce that Estra, or the O and the, uh, the E and the O combine and sometimes just give us the long O, Ostra. And the reason I say that is because it's a Scandinavian goddess of dawn or spring. So that word comes from Scandinavia. And it's a Scandinavian goddess of dawn or spring. Or it could be Ostern, O-S-T-E-R-N, Ostern, which is, is a Teutonic fertility goddess, a Teutonic fertility goddess. Both pagan figures were honored at festivals celebrating the vernal equinox. And, of course, we run into vernal equinox, and we need to figure out what that means. Vernal really is a Latin word, V-E-R, that means spring. And equa, continuing with our Latin lesson here, means even, and nox, of course, means night. So it's at the vernal equinox, at the approximate time when day and night are equal, that this holiday is celebrated, and it's also the time of the Passover. It's the time of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Well, first of all, our first word that we studied, the Scandinavian goddess, Ostra, is one of the many similar names of the Euro-Mediterranean pagan goddess, which takes the form of Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R, Ishtar. And Ishtar was most often associated with the region around Mesopotamian, uh, the Euphrates River. Traditions associated with these festivals include, and now you'll say, well, I haven't heard of any of this before. I don't recognize anything. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know where he's going. Easter rabbit. Easter rabbit. Here we are. Traditions associated with these festivals include the Easter rabbit, 
a symbol of fertility. They also, it also includes Easter eggs painted with bright colors of spring and signifying growth and new life. The Christian holiday builds on the tradition of the Jewish festival of the Passover. We would say Pasha, P-A-S-C-H-A, and that's a uh, probably a little harder C-H-A than we would normally give it, Pascha, for which Christians substitute Easter. So instead of us calling it the Passover, we call it Easter. We've substituted the word Easter for that that uh, the word that we would get out of the Bible. And of course, the Passover was, was the celebration of the Israelites for their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. And we have to remember, we've gone over this before, but when the Lord reminded Israel of who he was, he very often reminded them that I am the God that delivered you from Egypt. I am the God that caused you to come up from the land of Egypt. And the reason this was so important is because Israel was helpless and hopeless and in bondage in Egypt. And they had no way of helping themselves. And God, Yahweh, brought them from Egypt. He brought them up. It's the Hifel stem. He caused them to come up. And so when the Lord wants to remind them who he is, he reminds them that when they could do nothing for themselves, he did everything for them. And I brought you out with a strong hand, with a mighty hand. And so he instituted the Passover so that they would never forget their exit from Egypt, their deliverance, really, from slavery. And that's a picture for the believer in the church age. The believer in the church age sees Israel and recognizes that we too once were slaves. We were slaves of sin in the slave market of sin. But because of the Lord who has provided our salvation, who has provided our deliverance, we now may defend, we can depend on him. And we remember his death, burial, and resurrection as you know, at the same time that uh, Judaism was recognizing the Passover, because it's that it's that moment and that time that we understand that we have the opportunity for freedom, freedom from the slave market of sin. Jesus Christ, crucified, is likened to the Passover's sacrificial lamb. Our passages tell us the first one in Isaiah fifty-three seven that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's Isaiah 53, 7. And of course, as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth, is Christ standing before Pilate. And as he was being accused by the chief priests of... Uh, offenses that he did not commit, he simply didn't answer. Pilate had to talk to him, address him, request that he say something before he spoke. Also, you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your either vain conversation or we could say your aimless manner of life, your, your life uh, received by tradition from your fathers. 
but with the precious blood of Christ. And when we speak of blood, this congregation and others understands that we're speaking of his spiritual death on the cross. The blood in this, in this verse, and when we study the Passover and we speak of the blood of the cross, the blood of Christ, we understand that that associates us with the analogy in the Old Testament of the animal dying. And so Christ's spiritual death on the cross is what pays for our sins. His spiritual death pays for our spiritual deliverance. He also died physically on the cross. That fulfills scripture. It allows him to go to the grave. It allows him to rise again. Pope Victor I, now we're off on church history, Pope Victor I, circa 189 to 198, standardized Easter to a Sunday holiday. And here's where we get into tradition. And there are many traditions that we observe uh, that were simply established by uh, a human convention. So we have a Pope, Victor I, who standardized Easter to a Sunday holiday. And in 325, the Council of Nicaea set Easter's date in relationship to, really, to the Paschal moon, to the Passover moon. And this didn't come easy because the East and the West argued over exactly when we were going to establish this. The West wanted to establish it on a particular day, whereas the East, the Orthodox Church, as we would call them today, wanted it to float to whatever day that Passover might fall on the calendar. But anyhow, the Council of Nicaea set Easter's date in relation to the Paschal moon, and that was in 325. The Gregorian calendar correction of 1582 placed Easter as the first Sunday after the full moon following our vernal equinox. And it usually falls between 22 March and 25 April. So, Easter occurs during the season, this season, and that's why you know, we're observing it today. We have now you know, moved past that period and we're observing it today. But believe me, there's still... Uh, scholars still struggle and battle over exactly when during the week the uh, first of all Palm Sunday occurred and secondly when Christ actually was executed and when he goes to the grave and there are good scholars on both sides what I want to do this morning before we move on to a, a more of a, a study of our Lord Jesus Christ during the week leading up to his execution, leading up to the cross, is I wanted to go back and just briefly, hopefully, look at what we were studying last week, and that was Palm Sunday. Because as I departed, I definitely had the feeling that there were some people who, as we looked at the timing, because we were really looking at Palm Sunday from the point that it was a fulfillment of prophecy, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. First of all, let me get my notes back up here. We saw that, well, this is not what we saw, but we'll see it this morning. First of all, we see that John the Baptist, and that's, again, another human convention. He's really not a Baptist, but he was a baptizer. 
And if we were to look at the word carefully, we would see that. But he's John the baptizer or, you know, Baptist, if that's uh, what we have to say this morning to keep us on track. But John the Baptist and Jesus both proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that proclamation came in Matthew. Matthew 3.2 for John and Matthew 4.17 for Christ. And if the kingdom was at hand, if the kingdom was at hand, meaning it's here, that's a figure of speech, to be at hand. We don't look at our hands and say, what does it mean? Kingdom is at hand. No, we understand that that means that it is here. Then the king was also at hand. And so if the kingdom is here, then the king is here. And that's precisely what the announcement was, was intended to announce. John was the one announcing the king's arrival. And this was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. That there would be someone announcing his arrival. And we see this in Matthew 3, 3. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew 3, 3. We're going to stay as much as we can in the New Testament this morning. Matthew 3. In those days, Matthew 3, I'm going to start in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is John's... um, Proclamation. And you'll notice that his proclamation is to repent. You know, John the Baptist, we get his name associated with his baptism, and that's fine, but he really is the one calling for repentance, for a change of mind. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John is announcing who? He's announcing the Lord. And if we were to go back to the Hebrew, we would see that this is Yahweh. He's not just announcing the Lord, meaning some uh, head of the house, someone who is uh, in charge of, uh, of a, maybe a political party or something of this nation, na- nature, but really this is Yahweh, whom we know is, therefore we know the person who's arriving would be God. In this case, the second person of the Godhead, the visible member of the Trinity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this begins with his incarnation, uh, with his incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ's coming in the hypostatic union. So the King, or the Messiah, which is Christ, we understand that word as the anointed one, would have a period of introduction to the people. And this would be Christ's three years of his earthly ministry. We call it the first advent. And then his entry into Jerusalem, like the king arriving at his capital city and palace, and that was what we call Palm Sunday. The kingdom is at hand because it's being offered to Israel. However, before the kingdom kingdom could begin, there needed to be a change of mind from legalism. And that's what John was saying, and that's also what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying. The legalism of Judaism was that works, they had a, a religion that was works-oriented. It was, wor- it was a works-oriented religion of Judaism. So that 
how we perform on a daily basis is how the Lord looks at us. Now, if you're thinking from the standpoint of how you think and how you approach the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God, then that's accurate. But if you're thinking that I need to work to impress God, now you're into legalism. Instead, we have the grace provision of Christianity or of the Lord. And so what, the Lord Jesus, what John and the Lord Jesus Christ were doing, were trying to get them to change their mind. Not to think legalistically, but to think from a grace position. After his three-year ministry, the large majority of Israel, unfortunately, failed to see Jesus as God and their spiritual Savior. How did they view him? They viewed him as a political deliverer. That's how they saw him. The majority. And certainly, the uh, religious leaders didn't even see him as that. They were opposed to him. The religious leaders rejected him completely. So, the religious leaders and the people refused to repent or change their mind about who and what Jesus Christ was. So, Palm Sunday is what we also call the triumphal entry of this king. It's the triumphal entry of this king that both John and Jesus have been announcing. His first advent, his earthly ministry, was coming to a close. It would be wonderful if it would not come to a close, but it was going to come to a close. We see that the cross would come before the crown. So the triumphal entry, this is really our second point now, the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday was, as we studied last time, a fulfillment of Scripture. And we saw Zechariah 9.9 as our first passage. Let's just go back into the Old Testament Just a few pages, because it's the second book, as you work your way back from Matthew. Zechariah 9.9 says, as a fulfillment of Scripture, this is the first point we really made last week, that Palm Sunday is, first of all, a fulfillment of Scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having deliverance. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. And we stop there because we have the distinction here between verses 9 and 10 is the distinction between Christ's first advent and his second advent. So, Zechariah 9.9 says that he will come in his triumphal entry riding uh, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. But last week we saw it was a fulfillment of another passage as well, and this is where we really began to uh, work a little harder. That passage is back in Daniel 9.24 and 27. Now some of you are already saying, oh no, here we go. Back to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. This is a critical passage. And we've studied it at least twice before. At least we've been through it twice before. Have not studied it in great depth. The first time I think we did is we were studying the history of Israel. But the more you study this passage, the more you understand the history of the human race. Because... There is a time in our history where God said, all right, Daniel, he passes this through an angel. This is the the remaining time of history. And that's what Daniel 9, 24 through 27 tells us. Now, it takes a little work, a little bit of uh, mental energy here, but we can do this and we can do it very easily. 
First of all, Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks are determined. And we can stop right there because the first word, 70, is accurately translated. The second one, weeks, is given to us as an interpretation because it's supposed to help us to understand what this says. But it's really the word seven. It's always good to remember what you have on your overhead or your PowerPoint display here. So Palm Sunday is the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Just a little review here for us. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 gives the timing for the remainder of human history. Okay, 70 weeks in verse 24 means really weeks being literally the word sevens. And so 70 weeks in verse 24. Weeks is literally the word sevens. Now, if we'd have said 70 sevens, we probably would have lost just as many people as if we would have said 70 weeks. But sevens stands for years. And we could go into a rather lengthy indication of what that means. But the word sevens here is a reference to seven years. So we have 70, really, times seven are determined. Okay. Now, try to remember that. Try to put that in perspective. Instead of reading 70 weeks, read 70 sevens and the sevens are years and so what we have is 70 times seven years which is going to give us 490 years and we could really stop right there and say that God has told us that there are going to be 490 years remaining in human history until a certain event is going to occur. Now, what happens? Let's skip down to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now we simply need to understand or determine when is that. And the determination of that date, the determination of that date is going to be during the time of Nehemiah because Nehemiah is going to get the command to return to Israel from where he is in Babylon, return to Israel and rebuild the city. Rebuild the city. What we see next is it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the prince, the Messiah, the prince, and we know the Messiah means the anointed, until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so what do we have here so far? It says that we need to understand something. That, from the going forth of this command, whenever that command is, to, and that command is to restore and build Jerusalem, until, now we say, we have one terminus. Now, what's the other one? The other one is until the Messiah, the Prince. Until the Messiah, the Prince. Well, 
We've seen a Messiah, we've seen a prince, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has come. And it says there will be seven, and if you, can stay, if you want to stay with the word weeks, you can, but you can see they're consistent here, but it's again sevens. It's seven times seven and 62 weeks or sevens. Now, I know that some of you are already saying, forget it, you know, and this is kind of where we lost you last time. But there's, there's really not a need for us to pause to determine why we broke this into 7 and 62. Historically, something does occur in those first 7 weeks, or what we'd say 7 times 7, and something occurs in the next 62. But it's a continuation of the two. It's the way the Hebrew would put these together. And together, that means 69. So, I, I'm not going to say trust me, but believe me, maybe that's a better way to say it, we're going from the restoration of Jerusalem until the, the anointed one, the prince, and there's going to be 69 of how many did we have? 70. We had 70, and we had 490 total years. Well, for those quickly doing the math, I think I might even have it here for you, 69 times 7 years is 483 years. So we're going to have a running tally of 483 years. Believe me, the years here are not going to be that important to you. But I wanted you to, to see that it is explained. And with a little bit of study, familiarity, this is something that we can very easily understand. So, from the restoration and the building up of Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there's going to be 483 of that total of 490 years. And in reality, if you, remember, if you say that's too much, no moss, no more, then simply remember we're going to get 69 of those original 70 by the time we see the Prince coming. And the streets shall be built again and the walls, even in troublesome times. Now we get to verse 26 and it says, after the 62 weeks. Now, don't let that throw you because this is like cooking at home. And the recipe calls for, oh, let's say a cup of chocolate chips. Okay, Early in the recipe. And then later on in the recipe, thank goodness, it calls for two more cups. Well, how many cups do we have? We have three. But the recipe might say, after the final two cups, continue. And that's what we have here. It's really referring to the 69, but the last we saw was the 62. So it, Hebrew picks up the 62. We've got 69. But it simply says... After the 62, again, weeks, this is going to be our after our 483 years. That's what it's trying to say here. After those 69 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that's where we find what? We now have found this is the triumphal entry. We know, and we'll see this as I go on, that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there's going to be a running tally of 483 years. 
until we get to the exact day of the triumphal entry. And that's the other important date or the important prophecy for which we recognize Palm Sunday. And we saw that last week. So prophecy is being fulfilled. And first of all, Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled. But what we really have here is the fulfillment of human history exactly as the Lord revealed it to Daniel. And so after 483 years, we come to the triumphal entry. Now, let me see if I can establish those dates for you. And we talked about this last time. From Azariah, or excuse me, Artaxerxes' decree in March of 44 B.C. until the triumphal entry in March of 33 A.D. is 483 years. Now, we, we could get the mathematicians out and we could go through the different uh, years and the way they work, but it does come out to 483 years. We have to remember that they were using a calendar that was 360 days, but it does come out. And this decree is found in Nehemiah 2.1. We went there last week and saw this. We went to, well, let's go to Nehemiah 2.1. Never miss a chance to open the Bible, to go back and look at a passage of Scripture. So right ahead of Job, Psalm Job, run into Esther, we go to Nehemiah, Nehemiah Esther, Nehemiah. And we see Nehemiah 2.1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. I've skipped one of our passages here. But last week you remember that Nisan is important to us because in Exodus, we saw in Exodus 12, the Passover was established in Nisan. This is going to be Israel's first month. So the first month of their calendar in Exodus 12, 1 says... Nisan is not only your first month, but this is the month in which you're going to celebrate the Passover. Well, isn't it interesting in Nehemiah 2.1, and it came to pass when? In the month of Nisan. So we're going to start during the Passover, and we're going to get to the triumphal entrance, uh, entry at the beginning of a Passover. Nisan to Nisan. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine, this is Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer, and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. But the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick and there's nothing wrong with you? Why are you sad? Now, let's jump over to uh, verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they, may, that, uh, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Jerusalem. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the houses which I will occupy. And so he is returning here to rebuild the city. Verse, actually, verse 5 is the one I wanted. So I prayed to the Lord of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And so we start here with this command. 
from Artaxerxes' decree in March of 44 BC until the triumphal entry in March of 33 AD, and that's 483 years. Now, here we go. So 99, so excuse me, 69, so 69 years of Daniel's 70 years have passed. That's what we learn in verse 26. That's all that we have to worry about. We're back in Daniel now. Daniel 9. Verse 26, and the 62 weeks, and after the 62 weeks, remember, we've coupled that with the other seven, so we've got 69. So 69 years of Daniel's 70 weeks have passed, period. What about that final seven years? You say, you know, well, okay, we've got 69. Well, let's see here. Let's go on in verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, now we've got another prince here. This is the prince of the people who is to come. The, the people of the prince. So there's a coming prince, and this happens to be the Antichrist, and the people are the Romans. So we say the Romans, who are the people of the prince, the Antichrist who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, excuse me. Uh, uh, we have this prince is the prince is the one that's going to come later on, but these people are the Romans destroying the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. And we are then going to have a gap. We've got a fairly significant gap here between verse 26 and verse 27 because in verse 27 we see, and he, and this is the prince who shall come, shall convert a shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So there is our last week. We've got the 70th week is yet to come. So 69 weeks, 69 weeks that were predicted to Daniel have been completed, and they were completed at the time when the Messiah, the king, was cut off. And that's at the time of the crucifixion. And that's how we understand Palm Sunday and the significance of that period. The 70th week is yet to come, and it's the tribulation of Revelation 9, 4 through 19. So, everything always takes longer than you anticipate it. Well, I thought we'd just whip right through this in a few minutes. It uh, goes to show that uh, I'm either too verbose or maybe the equipment just works slowly up here. I'll blame it on the PowerPoint. But anyhow, that is the significance of Palm Sunday. And what I want to do now is begin to walk us through a day-by-day a day period of what occurred during the week after, the, uh, after Palm Sunday, after the triumphal entry.